Hello and welcome to this discussion on the 2019 Women's International Literature Showcase and thank you to the British Council and the National Centre for Writing for bringing this project together. I'm Badisha, I'm a journalist and broadcaster and a trustee of the Booker Prize Foundation. I'm in conversation with Elif Shafak, the internationally best-selling novelist and commentator. She has chosen 10 writers of great range and distinction, representing just some of the variety of form, voice, approach and interest to be found in contemporary writing by women. Of course, we aim to avoid generalizations and there are as many bodies of work as there are artists to create them. But we're going to try over the next 40 minutes or so to tease out what makes contemporary literature by these writers so thrilling and still so necessary. First of all, welcome Elif Shafak. Thank you. <laughs> um, we're here at the London Book Fair and deals and panels are going, around, going on around us as we speak. Uh, we're also meeting at a time of great political and cultural change. What would you like to hear being celebrated across the industry in the conversations around you? I, I fully agree. I think it's a time of great political turbulence. I dare say emotional turbulence as well. There's a lot of anxiety, uh, almost an existential angst, uncertainty. There's a lot of resentment, bitterness and anger everywhere in the world, East and West. In the past, we used to think, or many people used to think, that some parts of the world were solid, safe, steady, and the Western world in general was on, in no need of talking about human rights and democracy, freedom of speech, because we were beyond that threshold. That was the general approach. And so other parts of the world were regarded as liquid lands, such as the country where I come from, Turkey. But I think particularly after 2016, that dualistic perception of the world has been shattered. And now we know that we're all living in liquid times as the philosopher uh, thinker Zygmunt Bauman had warned us years ago. So to me, it's very important to understand what is the role of storytelling at a time like this? Um, how can storytellers heal, mend, and help us to overcome these dualities, polarizations that are opening up everywhere and I don't think are doing us any good? I am worried that when societies become bitterly polarized, they lose the culture of coexistence. And then the, the language of hatred and hostility and antagonism becomes bolder. So to me, literature is an antidote to that. And that's why I'm very excited that we have such a diverse range of women writers and poets speaking up at a time like this. You've talked about the power of literature to anchor us during these liquid yeah. times. And I, I have to say, I think that you have to edit a collection of essays called Liquid Times. It would be really, be really necessary. I, I wondered also if literature at a time like this can somehow give a voice to the voiceless or uncover those voices and stories and themes which have been erased or belittled or pushed to the edges. Absolutely. And I think one of the major problems uh, in the world of culture and art as well is that it's too centralized in certain cities, certain places. Most of our debates are taking place in London. London is wonderful in its diversity and it's, it's a very special city but we have to go beyond London. And it worries me that this gap between the countryside and the urban centers is widening, not only in England, not only in the UK, but all across, across Europe. And that is affecting politics as well. 
So it's very important not to be divided into information ghettos, into cultural tribes. Uh, I find that very worrying. And the writers and poets we have on our list today are people who bridge those gaps. And they write from very diverse backgrounds. To me, that's very exciting. I want to know a little bit about uh, your take on the role of uh, sex and gender within literature, because you have an astonishing uh, success <laughs> to your name. I know you're very modest about it, but you also have lots of years of experience. So you've seen the way um, the industry's changed. You've seen the way debates around women and writing have changed. Do you think that writers who are women are still subject to double standards or certain expectations or pushed into particular niches? Yeah. It is such a such an important issue for me. I was raised by a single mother, a working mother, in a very patriarchal society, and it left a big impact on me, observing my mother's struggles, my grandmother's struggles, and I'm a big believer in sisterhood. I think it's incredibly important for us to encourage the kind of women's movement that goes hand in hand with LGBT movement and awareness, and also brings on board women of very, very diverse backgrounds, whether it's ethnic backgrounds, class backgrounds, so it shouldn't be just one type of conversation. I wish I could say the literary world is just beyond these concerns, but it is not. And maybe on the surface it looks very progressive, very liberal-minded, very open-minded, but when you scratch the surface underneath, you will see the gender patterns and it's quite difficult to fight back against these because oftentimes there's nothing written down, there's nothing concrete. It's much more diffused, it's much more internalized. Uh, and that's why it's, it's more difficult to fight back against, and yet we must. Uh, there, it's, it's very clear to me, I look at the number of women who are being reviewed uh, on ma mainstream media publications, and I look at male writers, there's a huge gap there. The way we talk about particularly a young woman's work. I think it's much harder for women when they're younger. Maybe it's relatively easier for us as we get older, but we shouldn't have to go beyond that, right? So uh, I've seen, of course, a much more stark version of this kind of patriarchy in Turkey, in a country where things are harder for women writers, journalists, poets, because where I come from, a male novelist is primarily a novelist. Nobody talks about his gender, but a women novelist is primarily female in the eyes of the society, of the literary world, and then secondary, she is regarded as, as a novelist. So you will be constantly belittled, looked down upon, uh, people will try to remind you that, of your limits, and it's very important for us not to let them pull us down. Um. It's very interesting what you say because, of course, as we're talking, there are three grand halls at London Book Fair around us, and there are women everywhere. But as I was saying to a colleague earlier today, I call it the harem model of male domination. So 99% of the workforce is women. Yeah. And then there's a guy at the top going, but I love women. Yeah. <laughs> Look how many work for me. Yeah. Um, and I also wonder, when all of these big book advance deals are being cut around us, is there a gender pay gap? But of course, that's impossible to find out simply because this industry doesn't hang together like that. Absolutely. It's very difficult to understand because we don't have that kind of transparency. 
And it can be quite confusing because at the first glance, the publishing industry is full of women. Yes. You know, there's everywhere. so many women yeah. everywhere in all uh, levels, except as you move upwards, decision making, you see less and less women. But there's something m much more indirect that I find very important as a writer. If you happen to be a woman, if you happen to come from an, the non-Western part of the world, I think there's an identity politics that's imposed on you. And this, this happens all the time. So if, you're, if you happen to be, a, let's say, an Afghan women novelist, you have to write about Afghan women and you have to write about you know, the sad stories of Afghan suffering. women. And I don't Patriarchal like that. suffering. You know, I don't like how identity politics limits us. We never expect an Afghan writer to write sci-fi, you know, or, or more avant-garde experimental fiction. We want so-called realistic fiction, whatever that means. So the, the way we attribute a function to fiction, especially when it comes to women or women of color or women of um, minority backgrounds, that is also something we need to address and talk about. Could we also maybe talk about trivialization? Is there a sense that what women write about, particularly if it's about women's lives, mm -hmm. um, either it has to be my father chained me to a radiator and whipped me for seven years and I was an ISIS child bride or whatever it is, or it's considered to be domestic or small or not interesting and somehow not universal? The, we, we try. I mean, the, in general, uh, I think there's... And it comes from all sides. Women writers are pigeonholed very easily in, in so many boxes. And we need to fight back against this. I am worried about all kinds of tribalism. And to me, one of my, you know, there are so many writers and poets I've learned so much from all throughout my life. People like James Baldwin or Audre Lorde, they left a huge impact on me. You know, I come from Turkey and maybe at first glance we might have, seem to have led very different lives. And yet, to me, they're so familiar. Their voice resonates so deeply with me. And someone like Audre Lorde, she would say, look at me, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm a poet, I'm a lesbian, I am a thinker, I am this and that, and I'm many more things that you might not be able to see at first glance. I have that multiplicity inside. I am worried that we lost the emphasis on multiplicity because of today's identity politics, because of tribalism, and we should not let that guide the world of literature and the world of art, because it should be the exact opposite. I think we should find a way beyond tribes and beyond identity politics. Can we talk a little uh, about the current Me Too testimonial movement, which I'm really amazed and exhilarated to see. It's uh, simply about survivors and witnesses standing up and saying, this is my truth, this is what happened. It shows a great bravery, but it also has a narrative dimension to it. It's about telling one's story. And of course, not every novelist or writer should have to cut open their veins and write the story in blood. But I wanted to know if you think writers today, particularly women writers, are tackling topics which used to be considered taboo or too difficult for fiction, or too traumatic, but are actually doing something really interesting and artistic with it. Yeah, I find the, the Me Too movement incredibly important, and it saddens me to see just, you know, in two months, we started asking ourselves, oh, did we go too far? 
you have centuries and centuries of patriarchy all around the world, and I, I haven't seen many people saying, have we gone too far with patriarchy, <laughs> you know? Immediately we start doubting ourselves, immediately we start questioning ourselves. When I say this, of course there are flaws in the Me Too movement that we should be aware of, but the core is incredibly beautiful and important. When I hear another woman's story, I am encouraged, empowered to tell my own story, you know? And also we have to deal, particularly in different parts of the world, we have to deal with this notion of shame, this weird concept of honor that's being imposed on us. And all of that makes it very difficult for women to speak up. So I do respect Me Too movement and the, its core very much. We need to carry on. And I think you're very right. It's this, the power of women, but it's also the power of stories coming together. That's, that's what it was so interesting about the movement. As a storyteller, of course I'm very interested in stories, but I'm equally interested in silences. I realize over the years that I am always drawn to those subjects that we can't easily talk about, whether it's political taboos, sexual taboos, or cultural taboos. And there's a desire in me to say, why is it like that? You know, can we please talk about this now? Because we haven't done so. And when I say this, it's important for writers not to try to preach not to try to teach, you know, it is not up to the a writer to try to give answers. We don't know the answers ourselves either. But I think it's important for writers to ask questions, difficult questions about difficult issues. And then you always leave the answers to the readers because every reader has their own personal journey and their own answers. But the questions should be asked. So a novel, in a way, is an open space where we can have a diversity of voices heard and where we can ask difficult questions. Um, looking at the, the writers you've chosen, I'm very wary of saying this is what women and writing are like now, but uh, you're a voracious reader, so I sort of trust you to have done a kind of survey in your mind. So there are, I know there are many more writers who would have been on the list were it not for the fact that you only had 10 slots. Uh, so when you look at contemporary writing by women in the UK, what kind of literary landscape do you yeah. see in general? Are there certain types of writing that compel you? Yeah, I felt very privileged when I was asked to, uh, to choose these authors, poets, but at the same time, it was very hard for me because I really wish I had a list of thousand names, a hundred names at least. You can certainly never do justice. But to me it was very essential to understand that culture doesn't only happen in London, you know, in certain neighborhoods in our city. How can I see, understand the, the conversation from a broader angle? What are the major fractures today? And I think one of those fractures is the divide between the countryside and the urban space. We have to find ways to bridge that gap. So that was important to me. Diversity was also incredibly important. To have a diverse selection of writers in terms of their um, backgrounds, but the forms they, they deal with, they experiment with, uh, the subjects they write about, the questions they raise. The, it's incredibly multi-layered uh, in that sense, the list. So, uh, of course, every list is incomplete, but it is a list that I think tells us, listen to these women, read these women, and at a time like this, at a time of uncertainty, division, ho and hostility, there's, these are writers who, who write with their heart, with their mind, they have a lot of chutzpah, uh, and I find the questions they raise incredibly central to our times. 
I wondered also about the inequalities or the challenges which are specific to, to artists who are women, not in terms of pay necessarily, but um, I think it was Sarah Hall who wrote an essay saying, you know, I'm a single mother and in the last two years I've had to say no to wonderful trips abroad and opportunities to travel and do a residency because there is the toll that being a single mother takes that you have to pay for childcare. You might not want to be away from your child for two weeks and you can't if they're small anyway, but that might cost more than what the opportunity is offering them. I wondered about how important it is to support artists who are women in creating a body of work, not just that one novel that's really phenomenal. Yeah. No, I think it's so important and what she says resonates with me deeply. And sometimes in this industry you can come across uh, women as well who might be very in indifferent, not necessarily supportive. I remember once many years ago I was invited to a writer's residence and my children were very small at the time and I was not able to stay there for three months. And when I expressed this uh, to the people, who are running the writers in residence program, there was no support whatsoever, just saying, well, what can't you arrange in your childcare? People don't think about it. Well, for three months. For three for months. God's you, sake. You, you don't do that. You know, you have to have flexibility for women writers who have young children, especially for single mothers. You they can they should be able to go and come back. You have to, you know, help them, support them. But people don't think about it that way. And I find that very troubling. For me, empowering other women, not only women, but minorities as well, uh, is, is incredibly important. And understanding everyone has their own personal stories, their circumstances. We should be able to talk about these things without feeling uncomfortable and without being made uncomfortable. Um, I do want to sort of... Um make a stand for, for women's success as writers, because actually if you look at not only who is critically acclaimed, but also who sells, I, I do think that women writers really dominate the marketplace, both as writers and readers. I wondered if you feel that that's the case when you take a more international look. It's quite interesting. I mean, the country where I come from, and my observation is it's, it's a similar situation in many other countries, uh, in a country like Turkey, let's say, where there is no freedom of speech and obviously where the publishing industry is badly bruised, if novels survive, it is thanks to readers. And most of those readers are women. Most fiction readers are women. And they do not only read a book and then put it on a shelf, they share books. So in countries like Turkey, a book is never a personal item. And that word of mouth, you know, um, you, you send it your copy to your aunt and your aunt sends it to her neighbor. It's in so, on so many occasions when I had a book signing, I've seen copies of my books underlined by different colored pens because different people have read <laughs> and underlined different sentences. That is very precious and that is what keeps us going. That is what makes it uh, very heartwarming even when the circumstances are against the world of publishing, against freedom of speech and freedom of imagination. So I think we owe a big thank you to book clubs, to that bottom upwards energy that is coming from civil society uh, and the way readers can share words. To me, that's incredibly important. What about the big anxiety that so many have at the moment, which is that books themselves as a form of conveying narrative are being supplanted by 
film and TV and that one can't even say that the films and the TV shows are bad. They're not. They're really good. They're very, very compelling. Um, it's always depressing to me when I come in and I'm on the tube and everyone is looking at their phone. Yeah. And I look for the one person who's reading a book. I mean, is that just, you know, an exceptional moment in the day? It's not really true. Or do we really have to defend the book? Yeah, I think we have to defend storytelling, the art of storytelling. The format might change sometimes. You know, we shouldn't be that worried about electronic books, in my opinion. But what is essential, what is universal, and what is so ancient is our need for stories and storytelling. Everything we do in our fast-moving society is based on speed, uh, just keeping up with things, with our schedules. Constantly our energy almost seeps outside, outward. Uh, and when we're in the company of other people, we do not find the time to go within and just retreat into that self, that very private, very personal space, that inner garden. We don't have time for that. But when you're reading a novel, you have to go into that space. And I think that space is very precious and it's important, even more so in the age of tribalism, in the age of clashing collectivistic identities. I have many readers in Turkey who are very xenophobic. If you ask their opinion about minorities, about Armenians, Jews, Greeks, Kurds, Alevis, they will tell you lots of negative things because this is what they've heard from their own parents. But then they come and they say, you know, I've read your book. And I love this character, and the character they're talking about maybe is a minority, uh, is maybe Greek or Armenian or Jewish. Similarly, I have lots of homophobic readers. This is the only narrative they have heard in a society as patriarchal and as sexist as Turkey. But then again, they come and they say, oh, why did you make this character suffer? And maybe that character is transsexual or gay. So I thought about this, you know, how come people who are less tolerant in the public space, more judgmental, more biased and bigoted, when they are reading a novel, relatively speaking, just a notch, they become more open and ready to understand the other's point of view and the other's story. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Authoritarianism is, requires collectivistic energy. You need like masses chanting at the same time, synchronized energy. It erases individuality. What stories do is they restore individuality, but not a selfish individuality, the kind of individuality that connects us with the rest of humanity. That is why I think in our age, we have to defend books, we have to defend storytelling, and we have to defend novels as well, because they take longer time to write, longer time to read, and we need to slow down. We need to go within in this fast-moving society that pulls us in all directions at the same time. How do you carve out time for your own writing? You're very, very prolific. You turn out a sort of full-length novel and countless pieces of commentary and journalism. And you also do this kind of thing, which involves at least a half day out in town. Um, how do you go about pursuing your process? You know, I struggle, like many women do, whether they're in their teaching, they're cooking, um, they're, they have a bakery. I think we all struggle and we have to see how that is common. Uh, but there's one thing that I learned a lot from reading other women writers' struggles, such as Toni Morrison, who was a single mother. Um, and she, in one of her essays, she talks about carving out space and time for yourself, whether you do it at nighttime or daytime, that, that may change. 
you may not have a perfect schedule. I think usually it's male novelists of a certain age who are very proud of their perfect schedules. You know, they wake up at the same time, they, they have their breakfast at the same time, they start writing uh, every day at the same time. When you are a mother, when you are a woman writer, and when you're doing several things at the same time, you can't have a perfect schedule. That is fine. That is okay. And somehow, from that multiplicity, we will have moments for ourselves. I panicked a lot in the beginning, and I went through a postpartum depression because I didn't know how to how to balance motherhood with with writing, which can be a very self-centered world and very introverted. But over the years, I learned better to, to balance them. Um, let's now look at your selection for the International Literature Showcase. Taken together, what would you like to say about contemporary British literature from the names that you've selected? I think these women are very brave. Um, they, they talk about issues that, that are very universal. And I think they should be read all around the world. Their voices should be heard in very different parts of the world. And it's very important for me uh, to be able to say, you know, they must be translated into many, many more languages. Um, and how important is it also to challenge the traditions of the English literature canon? I mean, I did English literature at university, yes. and I think the syllabus had remained unchanged yes. for at least decades, if not yes. centuries. Yes. And when I talked to my tutors about other things, regardless of what it was, I remember reading a collection of diary entries and they looked at it like it was an alien object. Absolutely. I, I definitely share your remark. I've stayed in academia for long years, teaching in different disciplines, and it always bothers me how these syllabus, the curriculum stays the same year after year. And we're not ready, even when we talk about literature and arts, fields that should be very dynamic. We make them stagnant, almost frozen in time. There is no doubt that the, the writers and poets that we have, we're, we're used to reading about, are, are great names. But at the same time, we should, we should bring on board people from very diverse backgrounds, different, you know, dealing with different subjects, experimenting with forms. We need to change our angle, shift our angle all the time. And I don't think it is as diversified as it should be. Also, it pains me that oftentimes English language departments are not in conversation with other departments, such as history, such as religious philosophy, um, and uh, such as political science. There are so many overlapping questions that we don't usually think. It shouldn't be that inward looking. It shouldn't be that narrow. So. I, I believe we need, to, we, need, we need to bring more diversity into this subject. And to me, it's equally important to bring more women's voices, diverse women's voices, into the civic space, into the public space. Um, looking through your list, there were some names that I discovered afresh, and then some yeah. who I've admired for a very long time, and I was waiting for them to have their moment. One of those authors is Bernadine yeah. Evaristo. I love the way that she correct accepted histories. So she looks at Roman London and she finds black history within that, or she flips traditional beauty ideals. What was it about her work that spoke to you? But what spoke to me primarily was her um, unflinching ability to bring the periphery into the center, 
to give more voice to the silenced and say exactly, you know the story that you think you know, can we talk about that story? And I'm going to tell you that story from a very different angle because that story changes depending on who is telling it. So this very universal question, who has the right to tell the story? We should never forget that. And I think that is one of the central quests in world literature. It is what helped me, uh, if I can share a small anecdote. I was a high school student. I read a novel by Ivo Andrich, The Bridge Over the Drina. And for the first time, two peasants in the Balkans were talking about Ottoman history. And I'd never thought about Ottoman history like that because at school I'd only learned about one version, official version of history. And here there were two, two peasants saying, wait a minute, you know, we experienced it in a, from a very different angle. That's what Bernardine Evaristo does for me, you know, just turns it upside down and helps me to see what I wasn't able to see before. Um, another author that, that does this, but in a very... Um, dedicated way, and it has an incredible seriousness of mind, is Kapka Kasabova, yeah. who manages somehow to tackle the legacy of communism and dictatorship yeah. in her work, and also to look at the question of sort of borders um, she traces in her, in her book, Border. She crosses Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece. But again, she has that wonderful ability to skew perspective, to stand on the other side and, and look back. And it seemed to me that her work is incredibly important for these times. I think her work is very important. I see her as a nomad, as an intellectual nomad, maybe a spiritual nomad. I'm intrigued by the fact that she, Bulgarian is her mother tongue, and she writes in English. Uh, Turkish is my mother tongue. I write in English, so it speaks to me. I was very intrigued by her work from day one. But it's primarily the way she crosses borders, all kinds of borders, national borders, ethnic borders, political borders. I find that very, very important. Is there a way in which novelists and artists can somehow tackle these often extremely uh, inflammatory issues yeah. in a way that actually doesn't inflame? It educates, it has... Uh, probity, uh, so it gives you something that the headlines don't give you. I think that is very true. And at the end of the day, the language that politics uses and the language found in storytelling are completely different. Because for politics, there has to be an us, there has to be a them, and this basic assumption that us is somehow better than them. But for a writer, there is no us, there is no them. Uh, and there's no other. The other is me. The other is my brother. The other is my sister. So we start from a completely different point. And we need the language of storytelling. We need a much more nuanced language that goes beyond these imaginary tribes that are being imposed on us. Um, there's another name here which immediately caught my attention because I know this woman, Patience Agbarbi, yes. as a performance poet because I've seen her on stage so many times and I looked into her body of work. She's really prolific, but yeah. she also really stands up for other black British writers. Yeah. And I wondered if that was part of it for you, that she's really an advocate for an entire history of British writing. Yeah. I think she's an advocate for uh, clearly equality, uh, dignity, you know, and at the same time, sisterhood. To me, that was very important. And at the same time, I see patients like Wabi as someone who bridges so many worlds, oral culture and written culture. There's an amazingly rich oral culture that sometimes 
in these literary circles we forget or we neglect. She doesn't do that. And at the same time, the way she weaves literature and performance. So to me, she's someone who embodies the power of words, whether it's written word or spoken word. Um, she carries that, that, that magic with her and she tours constantly. You know, she's a nomad too in that regard. In a way, she's been around for a long time, but she actually has a very youthful millennial mindset because, for example, earlier today at the London Book Fair, we were doing an event all about poetry and it's the norm for emergent voices within poetry to have a live element, to tour, to build networks. They don't care so much about having a volume published by a legacy publisher. And it seems that Patience Agbabi is a sort of pioneer of that long before it was fashionable. I think she, she started long before um, when nobody saw it that way. And almost as if, I don't know if she'd agree with this, but almost as if she has a, a mission to spread the word, to spread the magic, you know, without necessarily owning it. There's a, there's a modesty there as well. There's a, there's a power, but also a modesty. The way I see her, maybe it's always in between, in between forms, in between different worlds, and I think in between them might be a very lonely space, uh, but at the same time it's the perfect place for art, for creativity and storytelling. Uh, now we have a, a journey into history. Uh, Charlotte Higgins is a sort of yeah. multi-hyphenate. She's yeah. a cultural critic and a journalist, but also a historian, and her book under Another Sky looks into Roman yeah. British history and uncovers all different sort of unexpected stories. It was a real surprise to me yeah. when I read it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think she's very unique in, in so many ways. And because she's so prolific in so many areas from, as I said, from journalism to, to history, the depth of her knowledge, the way she views all these subjects spoke to me. I think we need more women intellectuals in public space. And when I say this, I'm cautious because I know the word intellectual in the UK is not a favorable word, unlike in France or in, in Turkey or in Russia. But why not? You know, we need women intellectuals. Uh, the fact that she brings mythology, um, history, philosophy, ancient philosophy into her work. But while she's doing this, she's also very open to new technologies, such as blogging, you know, very different uses, very different forms to make her voice heard was equally very interesting to me. And I, I, I think in many ways she's very unique. Why do you think it is that intellectualism is not valued in the UK? This is a very British thing, <laughs> I, I must say. Uh, people think if you call someone, or if you, even worse, if you, if you call yourself intellectual, people think, oh, that's a sign of arrogance, you know? Uh, and, and you're expected to do the exact opposite. You should be making fun of yourself. But then there are moments in time when I think it is important to say, you know, so-and-so dedicated her life to ideas, to books, to reading, to writing, and I celebrate that. I need that. I need more women like that. I need more men like that. It doesn't mean I have to agree with their every opinion. I can challenge, I can disagree, but I respect a life dedicated to books, to thinking, to philosophy. To me, intellectual coming from a Turkish background, and, and I come from a country where, we, where, where it's not easy to be an intellectual, uh, where intellectuals are incarcerated, arrested, detained, but there's a space maybe for them in that society. So 
to my Turkish ears, it has a positive connotation. And it was one of the things that struck me when I first moved into this country. How come intellectual has such a negative connotation? And why do people keep associating it with arrogance? It has nothing to do with that. Um, I want to take a little bit of a left turn here and, and, and take a trip into nature. I was delighted that you selected oh. one of my favorite authors, Sarah Maitland, oh. whose short stories I have read for a very long yeah. time. She reminds me of a kind of new generation Angela Carter. Yeah. But in the most recent years, she's known for her meditations on yeah. contemplative silence and uh, her great book of hers called Gossip from the Forest, which manages to combine nature writing, fairy tale, myth, and memoir. Absolutely. And that's what drew me uh, immediately into, into her work. And I honestly think, uh, again, in, in more narrow literary circles, there are subjects we don't think about enough uh, and we don't necessarily include in our discussions. I, I don't like those, those gaps. Uh, I, I don't share those, those divisions. I was interested in, in her work, uh, in her fiction, but also in her lectures, in her thoughts. Uh, and I think the questions that she's asking about mythology, folk tales, folklore, but also about faith, to me it was faith and doubt, I should say, was quite, quite interesting. Do you think that we as a society, given the digital revolution that we're only at the beginning of, are um, sort of crying out for a space for contemplation that at the same time as being addicted to our screens and our phones, yeah. there's an equal pull in the opposite direction yeah. towards silence and retreat. We are being very much pulled towards speed. Uh, we're almost atomized. And it's quite ironic because imagine there was so much optimism not that long ago, in fact, especially tech optimism, how we were all going to become much more connected thanks to digital technologies. It was going to be one big global village. Nationalism was going to disappear. Religious fundamentalism was going to disappear, etc. And, and democracy, that it will be the triumph of liberal democracy everywhere because once you have digital technologies, how can you not adopt liberal democracy? And we would all reasonably persuade each yes. other towards a centrist yeah. view. Yeah, and we would be connected yeah. because it would be, be wonderful. <laughs> Fast forward today, a decade later, it's ex the exact opposite. And in fact, I find it quite, quite ironic, even in Silicon Valley, we need to talk about this, they say they love diversity. When I look at the people working, only 1% African-Americans, 2% Hispanics, only 15% women. You know, there isn't diversity even inside Silicon Valley, let alone the digital technologies that have been created. So the, ex the exact opposite, in fact, happened. Rather than creating a network in which we would all become connected, I am worried that it's a network that has pushed us into tribes, into information ghettos, made us feel more lonely, uncertain, anxious. And this is worrisome because it's a golden moment for demagogues. This is how demagogues enter into the picture. They say, are you, are you anxious? I will give you certainty. You know, if you, want, if, you, if you find the world you're living in very complex, I will give you simplicity. So we need to be very careful about the dark side of social media, in my opinion. Um, we turn now to a, a poet whose 
real focus is actually about getting into the complexity and into the nuance yeah. and staying away from, from certainty. Gillian Clark, yeah. um, she's a very long-standing writer. She was National Poet of Wales from 2008 yeah. to 2016, and she's looked into everything from the symbolism of ice and water to the history of disease. Yeah, well, she's a towering figure. Uh, and uh, I remember the BBC had introduced her as a living, breathing gold medal of poetry. Uh, I think that is very true. What drew me into her work primarily was, uh, of course, the depth, the breadth of her work, but also the way she connects the local with the global. So you have uh, a voice that cares about the minute details in nature, but at the same time talks about what's happening in Yugoslavia or, or, or what's happening in another part of the world where there's civil conflict or civil war and cares about other people's pain. That is also quite unique, you know, emphasis on the local and emphasis on the global at the same time. That is why I think we need to read her more extensively in our troubled times. Do you think poetry is unique in being able to do that, yeah. particularly because of its clarity and its brevity, so it yeah. can roam all over yeah. the map and you know it doesn't drag you down with, with weight? I think that's very true, and I think that's why we novelists are very jealous of <laughs> <laughs> poets and yeah, the, the power of poetry. It's very special. Yeah. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, the traditional trivialization of women's stories and, and, and women's experiences, I do think that that's changing hugely, that yeah. we are yeah. uh, reinvesting dignity into these stories. And I, I thought Jessie Greengrass is an interesting author to talk about here because her novel, Sight, is about yeah. when you make a child, what does it mean to create, yeah. a, li create a life but also recreate yourself Absolutely. as this figure called the mother? Absolutely. And I think she's so good at pointing out to journeys. We all go through journeys. So the self is not a given static thing, particularly for women with so many stages of our lives throughout pregnancy, motherhood, menopause, many, many stages. And she talks so bravely, beautifully, with such sensitivity about these subjects, about life, death, what does it mean even to have a body? Uh, I, I, I love that about uh, her work and particularly about sight. Uh, we come now to a novelist whose next novel I'm desperately waiting for, uh, Evie Wilde's mm -hmm. second novel, All the Birds Singing. Mm -hmm. I remember reviewing it. It's uh, mm -hmm. an excavation of a woman's traumatic history, which is told to us through memories, but it's also really sort of muscular writing about the landscape yeah. and about rural... Um, rural jobs and, and farming. What is it about her work that, that spoke to you? It was primarily the, the way she made landscapes talk. Uh, so f I think in her work, landscapes are not passive, a passive scenery in the background, just the opposite. They're very much alive, they're very much part of the story and also very much part of the history and very much part of untold stories coming from Istanbul that spoke to me because I think Istanbul is also a city with an amazing character. It shapes us. And that's what I love about her work. It shows us how landscapes shape us, our perceptions, our awareness, and even the stories that we have not told to the next generation. It affects our silences. And I find her work uh, across countries, cultures, uh, from Wales to Australia, very 
very vivid and, and very powerful. Do you think women are reclaiming nature writing? Traditionally, it was yeah. seen as a sort of Victorian colonial occupation yeah. that man goes forth and conquers the mountain yeah. and uh, any other voice yeah. was completely excluded. It seems to me the tide's turning a little bit. I think that's, a, that's such a brilliant question. When we speak about flaneur, this tradition of the male traveler discovering cities, discovering streets and telling the story, it's always, there's a prototype and I think that no longer is the case. We need female flaneurs, and not only in our cities, but beyond, into the countryside. Um, to be honest, I think after 2016, after Brexit, the referendum, we need more flaneurs leaving London, going into different parts of this country and of the world, and connecting with people, listening to their stories, and telling, sharing her own stories with them. And we need so, more flaneurs of color. We I need mean. more flaneurs of color, yes. <laughs> not just victims. Oh, absolutely, not, no, definitely, yeah. Um, now we, we come to, to urban life. This is a woman I saw at the Edinburgh Book Festival being hilarious and very, very charismatic, the Scottish author Denise yeah. Mina, who writes um, blazing, gritty, yes. very, very... Yes. Uh, fast-moving uh, crime novels. She's written many novels which break down into, I think, about three series. But I've realized that she always has an acute focus on social injustice, and in particular, class and inequality. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the many things that make her work so unique. Uh, I think Denis Mina is very, very clever, very compassionate, outspoken, Crime fiction is a very particular genre in which you would expect to find more women, but in fact there aren't. When I look across the world uh, and the books that are translated or not yet translated, she has a very unique voice. And the fact that she can engage, she can enter into conversations with people of all kinds of backgrounds, without any judgment, without any elitism, I love that about her work. She has researched, talked about, written about also very difficult subjects like mental illness, like crime, uh, female criminals. So she doesn't only write stories that revolve around crime, but she thinks about the causes of that and the causes of inequality. To me, that's very, very powerful. Do you think class is the remaining great unspoken in literature, and I'd say particularly maybe in England where it's the elephant in the room, that we're very comfortable talking about gender and misogyny, we're getting comfortable talking about race, yeah. no one talks about class? Yes, it is, it is one of those major glass barriers. It doesn't seem to be there, but when you get closer it is there. And I think in the year 2019, Belatedly, we have to make inequality the center of our debates, the center of our, of our lectures and talks. We live in a, in a world in which there is a widening inequality. It has social, political, cultural, emotional uh, results and damage. It damages so many lives. It robs people of an equal opportunity. Uh, and, and it's just amazing that we don't talk about it in, in, in the literary world enough. We don't write about it enough. Uh, I, I also have to say, to me it's very troubling when I look at, for instance, the MPs in this country, only 3% of them come from blue-collar background. It wasn't always the case. 
not that long ago, many labor MPs used to come from trade unions or, or towns that had trade unions, you know, that culture. Many conservative MPs used to come from agricultural communities or more religious communities, but they had a very strong base in the society. More and more, MPs start to become similar, similar schools, similar upbringing, you know, uh, educated in similar circles. And the gap between them, people who make the decisions, and the people who are being ruled is, is opening up, is widening. That is very troubling because it also diminishes people's trust in politics, people's trust in politicians, and unfortunately, people's trust in democracy. It creates more extremes because if you don't trust the system, you will start looking for extreme you know, alternatives. I'm worried about all of that. So we need to talk about inequality for, for many, many reasons. And I don't think we have written about inequality enough. Um, this brings me on to the next person you've chosen very well. It's the Irish writer Lucy Caldwell. She's very, very prolific in lots of different yeah. fields, but I noticed that there's one common thread running through all of her work, yeah. and that's about talking about the long after effects of yeah. occupation and war and fragile states and social and political division. She talks about social and political divisions. I, I think she also talks about memory. What do we remember? How do we remember? How, and how do you talk about painful, painful memories? Like many other authors on this list, she is someone who is prolific in various areas, from short stories to plays. And she has a voice in that sense in the public space too. And I find that very, very important. We must never forget where nationalism, tribalism, violence can take us. These are dark tunnels that humanity has gone through. And we can never be, uh, you know, never take it for granted, never say, oh, it won't ever happen again. It can happen again. And memory is an important part of our conversation as writers. And she does that brilliantly. Um, Lucy Caldwell closes out our list. I have just a, a yeah. few more very brief ending questions for you. Uh, of course, we want people to read these authors and love them and cherish them. But is there another level of critical engagement of getting the authors into the canon, onto the syllabi of universities and schools, of really creating a lasting mm -hmm. body of commentary and, and analysis around their work? I think it's very important to bring them into uh, different syllabi, but at the same time, universities definitely, schools definitely, but at the same time, libraries. It, it makes me very sad to see how libraries are being closed down at a time it should be the exact opposite. And we need more readings, we need more talks, especially in libraries, because sometimes people think that these conference halls are belong to another group in the society. And unfortunately, we talked about class. I, I sense this. Sometimes people don't go into these spaces because they think, you know, it's, it's, it's a much more elite space. But libraries aren't like that. Libraries are open to everyone, embracing. And for me, it's very important that we have more and more readings and activities and public discussions in our libraries. Uh, we have celebrated the work of 10 authors from all over the UK, and I'm aware that we've slightly neglected your own works. As a writer, what's next for you in 2019? I have a new book coming out, a novel, uh, in June this summer. It's called 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in the Strange World. 
That's very, very <laughs> enigmatic. Can you say a little bit more about it? Um, I'm interested in the stories of outcasts. I think that has been a central thread in my work. But in so many ways, this book feels very special to me, even though it's not my own history. It's the story of, um, uh, of a woman, of a, of a seeker, of a prostitute in Istanbul who has been brutally killed. Uh, she, her body is found in a garbage can, and uh, after the moment of death, her mind continues to work for another few precious moments, exactly for 10 minutes, 38 seconds. And in that time, she remembers her life. I've got the chills just, <laughs> just hearing about that. I can't wait. Thank so, you so much. Uh, finally, the themes that we've covered are vast. Uh, and I notice that they really echo conversations which are already happening well beyond the literary realm. So these issues crop up in journalism, activism, ecology, politics, and psychology. Do they make the argument that literature is as important as it ever was in its ability to hold such complexity and, and depth? Mm -hmm. I think together they show us that women ask incredibly important, vital and universal questions. I think they, they, they breathe ox oxygen into our public space. And to me, maybe... What's equally important is there isn't one single way of telling a story. There are very different ways. Sometimes you perform it on stage. Sometimes you write it in a, in a historical novel. Sometimes it is a play, a theater play. Sometimes it's a radio drama. There are very different forms open to us, and we can travel across these genres. None of them is superior to the other. So while I was choosing the authors, that was maybe one of the statements that I wanted to make. There are very different ways of telling a story, but our need for stories is here to stay. And in, in our troubled times, we need to hear these voices more than ever before. You've been listening to a very special episode of the National Centre for Writing podcast. It's Wednesday 13th of March 2019, and this episode was recorded yesterday on the opening day of London Book Fair, where Elif's selection of writers was announced. A huge thank you to Elif and Badisha for finding the time in their LBF schedules to join us on the podcast. The International Literature Showcase is a collaboration between us and British Council, serving as a guide to some of the best and most intriguing corners of UK literature. This was the first of several showcases. Later in the year, we'll be joined by Val McDermott and Jackie Kay for their own curated selections, exploring LGBTQI and BAME writers. If you work in literature or simply like to find out about amazing writers, you can sign up to the Showcase newsletter by visiting the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash ILS. You can join in the online conversation by following the hashtag LitShowcase. Every week on this podcast, we talk about the writing life and discover exciting new projects. Please do subscribe, rate and review us over on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you happen to find us. If you have writer friends, then please do let them know about us. My name is Simon Jones. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.